Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Seabury Securities, global reach, global scale. seaburysecurities.com. And Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Here we go, listeners. I'm Chris Chimes, and as Charlie's booming voice just told you, this is Airlines Confidential. We've got an excellent show this week, highlighted by a chat with Peter Robeson, the author of Flying Blind, the definitive book about the 737 MAX accidents. Ben, you there? Yes, I'm here, Chris. And I agree, listeners are going to really enjoy the Peter Robeson conversation. So why don't we get right to a few news items so that we can then get to Peter? That's the deal. First up, as we count down the days in June, we are heading to the close of the second financial quarter for most U.S. airlines. And Delta floated a big smoke signal of positive news this past week, saying it expects revenue to return to 2019 levels this quarter. Ben, do you think this rising tide is going to lift all airlines? Well, it'll be interesting to see whether it lifts all airlines from a stock perspective. And what I think is really interesting about this is Delta is saying that they're going to hit 2019 revenue levels, even though they are only flying about 80 to 85 percent of the capacity they flew in 2019. And all you need to know is that that means the prices are a lot higher. If with only 85% of the flying or less, they can get the same revenue. And so the real issue, I think, Chris, is going to be how long will customers be willing to pay the high fares that are out there for many airlines, including Delta, this summer, maybe because they're itching to get back to a vacation when they maybe haven't spent much money on vacation in the last two years. But whether that can carry on into the fall and into next year, I think, is a question mark. So while certainly a positive move, the fact that it's being driven on higher fares but lower capacity gives me a little bit of pause. Yeah, I wonder if there's a cliff at the end of this summer where, again, like you said, there's been so much pent-up demand and people have been looking forward to their summer vacations. And once that's all done... Does the inflation factor and other kinds of things kind of put a pause on consumers' willingness to pay these fears? I mean, certainly it's good for the business and their rebound that uh, the demand is there at these high fears, but how long, like you said, can it be sustained? You know, but, but Delta's also been you know, operating on all cylinders on a bunch of other factors. I mean, they opened a new terminal in LAX. They just opened their LaGuardia terminal to great fanfare. Uh, Ed Bastian's talking about a deal with Boeing for more aircraft. So, you know, they are walking around pretty uh, confidently um, that this is sustainable. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Delta has generally outperformed its peers, being American and United mostly, in part because their network is stronger with more dominance at their hubs, in part because their capital costs are a little, a little lower with an older fleet, 
in part because they just have operated more reliably and have become more dependable for business travelers, although they've been caught with cancellations recently too. But overall, they've tended to outperform. And so them saying this is good news for them. I'm not 100% sure that's going to suggest that people start thinking positively about the whole industry as a result. And like you said, we could be looking at a big drop-off as we go into the fall when the leisure traffic drops off. And once again, just like last year at this time, we're wondering what is business travel going to look like in September and October? So let's switch gears a sec. Ben, I know we've talked about the situation at KLM's Amsterdam Schiphol Airport Hub previously and about the various levels of chaos that have resulted from staffing shortages. But now this past week, they, KLM, started advising passengers not to bring luggage in order to improve their chances of getting to the gate for their flight. And KLM is lashing out at other airlines for not capping their own operations at the airport. This has been going on for weeks now. I read this release, Chris, and I was just kind of dumbfounded. For airlines to say don't bring bags versus maybe charge a little more for the bags in order to create that incentive, I thought was amazing. Putting their operational problems on the customers, don't bring bags so you can get to your gate on time, right? That that just seemed kind of odd to me. Also, to suggest that their competitors should fly less at their hub so that their hub can operate more efficiently. You know, if a company can be narcissistic, that's what KLM is, I think. (laughs) They're saying none of these are our problems. It's our customers bringing too many bags and it's our competitors flying too many flights. I think they need to look more internally and say, let's look at our staffing. Let's look at our scheduling. Let's figure out how to run our operation before we start blaming everybody else. Is that too harsh, Chris? Uh, no, I think you're being somewhat kind, actually. I mean, this is not a, a domestic hub. They're not operating like the New York to D.C. shuttle. This is an international hub. People are going to have bags. People have made these plans. I have to wonder what has they've really done to get the staffing up. And a lot of this is the lack of security staff to process the passengers and also I think some baggage handling staff. So these are generally airport service kinds of jobs the way I understand it, although I'm sure there's probably some airline staffing issues as well. But I mean, like you, I was dumbfounded that, you know, basically you're saying don't, don't come do what you're supposed to do at an airport, (laughs) which is bring your bags to go on a trip. So um, I, I just think some, some more self-reflection and self-responsibility is required here to kind of step up and help solve the problem. I mean, if these are security processors, is there a National Guard or some equivalent or who who else can be employed to help with this problem? Baggage handlers can be quickly trained uh, if that's the case or the same with security or, you know, there's back-end security jobs that perhaps other people can do. But I, I'm just like you dumbfounded. Well, you know, in the European market can be kind of nasty, as you know, Chris, in terms of the competitive dynamics. So I'm actually kind of surprised that 
a Lufthansa or a BA has and said, hey, bring all the bags you want and connect in Heathrow or Frankfurt and avoid Skipple. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm waiting for the Ryanair people to give them a big finger with regard to like, you know, don't, don't blame us for this. No, that's right. Well, one way to stay reliable is from one of our sponsors, Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and APUs. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is the only geared propulsion system delivering industry-leading sustainability and dependable world-class operating costs. With up to 20% less fuel and CO2 emissions, the GTF engine has revolutionized commercial aviation and set the foundation for more sustainable aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. And if you're in the air transport business, you need to know the name Aerodata. For three decades, Aerodata has helped airlines get more from their operations with its aircraft performance, weight and balance, and load planning tools and more. Visit aerodata.co to learn more and see how the Aerodata team can make a difference for your air carrier operation. Ben, before we get to Peter Robeson, let's cover off a Boeing item that we didn't talk to him about because it happened after we spoke to him. But it's likely tied to some of the issues we're going to discuss in just a moment. Last week, the FAA acted on Boeing's application to renew its self-regulation authority on safety-related work. It's typically a five-year authorization. The FAA said that a three-year renewal was, quote, more appropriate. The FAA also said its inspectors and not Boeing employees will continue to be responsible for issuing final safety certificates for all new Boeing 737 MAX and 787 jets rolling off the company assembly lines. Well, when I saw this, I thought, wow, this came out just a few days after we talked to Peter. And I think had we reminded him of this or brought this up, he would have said, well, this is just a natural consequence of what we've been talking about. You're exactly right. I think, as we'll talk about with Peter, the issues that created that crash said a lot of things about Boeing, but they also said things about the FAA and its relationship and duties as an oversight regulator. And they've been doing more. You know, a while ago, we talked about the fact that they were going to inspect each and every 787 around its batteries. And this is another example of that saying, let's reduce the time of the renewal. Let's take three years at a time instead of five. And we're going to have our inspectors issue the final certificate for all these airplanes, not just the 787s, but also the MAXs as well. So I think this is just a continuation of what the FA started a little while ago, and all a reaction to the Max crashes. We're going to talk a lot more about Boeing in just a moment with Peter Robeson. Airlines Confidential, we'll be right back. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. We're very excited to have Peter Robeson with us today. Peter wrote a terrific book called Flying Blind, the story of Boeing and the 737 MAX crashes. Peter, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Why don't you tell us about your background and why you decided to write this amazing book? 
Well, thank you for having me, and and thanks for uh, thanks for saying nice things about the book. I started as a reporter for Bloomberg uh, 25, actually 27 years ago, and uh, one of my early jobs at Bloomberg was working as the beat reporter covering Boeing in Seattle from 1998 to 2002. And that was a really pivotal period in Boeing's history. There, there was a lot of debate about the future of the company. It had just bought McDonnell Douglas and the engineers started a, a, a strike, which was at the time the, the largest white collar strike in U.S. history. And, and they were arguing that, that Boeing wasn't, had, you know, had changed and wasn't making the investments necessary to compete. And the strike was eventually settled, but Boeing went on. Uh, but, but that, you know, I sort of, <laughs> that created a, uh, you know something in my memory, and I, I, I went back to that after the the second crash when the Max crashed um, in March 2019. That debate came back, and and it it became apparent that over the years Boeing had changed, and and that something had drastically changed after the McDonnell Douglas merger. So Peter, I uh, listen to this book on audio on my daily walks, and you know I don't know what a page turner version of an audio book is, but it certainly. Uh, I powered through it uh, in three or four days, actually. Uh, was this a book before the crashes? You know, you kind of hinted at, at, you know, in your response to Ben, but did the crashes bring out the reason for the book or did you think there was a book there to start with before the crashes? So it's interesting because in 2017, um, I, I continued writing about Boeing. I, I stopped being the beat reporter in 2002 and I became the bureau chief in Seattle and uh, wrote for the magazine, but continued dropping in on Boeing. And it, it seemed that what had started as a company that was very product focused and uh, really had commercial aerospace in its blood had become one that was run consecutively by disciples of, of Jack Welch and, and the, the General Electric mentality, which it had taken in to its bloodstream really from the McDonnell Douglas merger because the head of McDonnell Douglas was a, a Welch protege, um, Harry Stonecipher. Really, you know, that, that changed the culture of, of the company. And in 2017, I wrote about uh, Boeing, which was led by a hard-charging executive named Dennis Mullenberg. And Boeing seemed to be inheriting the mantle of General Electric. It uh, Its stock price had tripled under his leadership, and it was generating huge amounts of free cash, and it seemed to be unbeatable. It was this in, industrial titan, and, and Mullenberg talked about how it was, you know, it, it, it had a goal. It was no longer to be just the best in aerospace. It was to be a, a global industrial champion. And it was interesting that, you know, what, what was happening was that Wall Street loved that, and and I think our headline at the time was that everybody hates Boeing except shareholders. Um and I, I think what you saw was that Boeing had just pushed too far in one direction and it, it needed to balance all of its uh, constituencies, the, the workers, the community, as well as and customers, as well as investors. Peter, when you were researching this book, which obviously started when you were reporting on Boeing, but then I'm sure at some point became specific research for the book, you must have talked to dozens, if not hundreds of people. How did you deal with what must have been conflicting stories? And how did you parse the truth out of all those conversations that I'm assuming must have happened? 
Yeah, that, that's a really interesting question. And it's it's something that I, I any reporter r- really struggles with this. And, you know, like you lose sleep over, you know, have I asked enough questions? Have I gone back to as many people as I as I can to, to pin this down? And the, the, the challenge, the challenge is just talking to everyone in the room, talking to everyone in the room a second time, uh, getting documents. Um, so when I had cases where people just had a fundamental disagreement of recollection, I, I included that in the story, but it, but it's always balanced with how specific people's recollections are. Some people had extremely specific recollections. They had documents in many cases. There's a, a scene in the book where in, investors are visiting uh, sort of a suite that uh, the Boeing Engineering Union had, had set up during a Boeing investor conference during its strike. And and this was this was a hugely pivotal moment for the Boeing Engineers Union because they they felt that the the health of the company, the health of their union was at was at risk in this strike. So they took photographs, they took notes at the time, they they collected all the documents that they presented, and they they had those many years later. So when I had cases like that where something was so carefully documented and then uh, you had vague responses on the other side, I, I had to I had to weigh that and, and consider that in, in my reporting. So Peter, the book highlights the cultural changes at Boeing when they merged with McDonnell Douglas, and you've referenced that in some of your remarks so far. And as I was listening to the book, I kept thinking, like, how did this happen? I mean, why was this such a pivotal transition for the company? And how was the McDonnell Douglas executive team allowed to, quote, take over when they were being taken over? Yeah, that's that's a good question, too. And and I think um, it, it does sound, you know, when I when I when I say it at a high level, you know, I, I, I sometimes get the, the response of, well, how could something that happened 25 years ago have affected a crash that happened, you know, so much after the fact. But engineers who lived it, and you know, certainly I saw it. Um, definitely feel this way, and and it is because you, it's because of the people. Ultimately, companies are run by people, and messages get sent down from the top by people. And at the time, Boeing was under real pressure, uh, and it was it, it was really only the period from. 1958 to 78, when when Boeing built the products that we think of as as those that created the jet age, like the the 707, the 727, up to the 767, that was really only that that single generation that had built those planes, and it was the next generation that was in charge, and and that was Phil Condit, who was a real pivotal figure because he's an engineer, he he understood the product, but he was in, I would argue insecure as a manager and insecure as a person. And when I heard real frustration from executives at the time, it was often about Phil Condit's inability to stand up to Wall Street to make the changes necessary to compete with Airbus. And I want uh, one senior executive I talked to at the time said, I, it, I, I would write a book about Boeing and it would be how Phil Condit destroyed the Boeing company uh, because it was his decisions that, led to the merger with McDonnell Douglas that allowed Harry Stonecipher, whose approach was diametrically opposed to the product-focused, customer-focused culture at Boeing to, to take over. So I, I think it's just in the interplay of personalities. And it's, and it's also the fact that 
that both Condit and Stonecipher really envied Jack Welch and what he had done in creating seemingly this unstoppable titan of Wall Street at, at General Electric. I worked for Gordon Bethune at Continental um, after he left Boeing to come run that company and got to know a real dynamic, terrific leader. I love his description of the early 737 in your book, describing it as a, a shitty pickup. Yeah. <laughs> and, and your book points out that even the newest Maxes don't have a glass cockpit. So I'm wondering, do you think Boeing still treats this plane like Gordon's original description? Yeah, that's, uh, he, he's extremely colorful. And, and he, in, in my interview with him, he, he put his finger on uh, sort of the, the decision that Boeing kept deferring for decades, which ultimately cost it. And that decision was with the 737, we have a plane whose technology dates to the 60s, but whose initial investment is paid off. All the tooling is paid off. All the design work is done uh, and we're essentially just producing profit when, when these planes come out, it's, it's, it's high volume and they're, and they're low margin, but, but it's all profit. And at some point Boeing and its leading customers like Southwest needed to make the decision to switch to the next generation. And Gordon Bethune told this great story about being in a meeting, even back to the early nineties in 1992, after United had switched to the A320 and there were a group of Boeing execs around a table. And Dean Thornton, who was running the commercial group at the time, asked people to decide, should we, you know, should we update the 737 to match the A320's technology? And uh, went around the room and uh, it was close vote. It came to Bethune and, and Bethune said that he was leaning toward uh, an update because he thought Airbus had stolen a march on, on Boeing. But he got a kick under the table from Ron Woodard, who was running the 737 factory and updating the 737 would have been a big adjustment for that factory. And and so Bethune said the, the next gen's the way to go, Dean. And and so that was the, the third version of the 737 that came out, which which was successful. And partly it was, it was successful because in some cases, Boeing did stand up to its customers who wanted extremely minimal change and did introduce some updates for safety. There, there was one case that I get into in the book where Boeing had, had these old, old-fashioned kind of analog dials in the 3.7 that they called the steam gauges, and Southwest wanted absolutely no change to that. But Boeing knew that eventually the digital displays would be preferred. So they designed a, uh, in the background in Southwest planes these digital displays. And, and then later, you know, many months after the plane was flying, Southwest said, oh, you know, actually we would like these digital displays. And, and Boeing said, great, all you have to do is flip a switch, as it was described to me. So it, it, was, it was those kind of forward thinking decisions that, that weren't being made later with the Max. It, it was a much more robotic of, approach of thou, thou shalt not incur simulator training uh, due, due to the expense. And that really hindered the engineer's ability to to push for for a glass cockpit or these other more advanced technologies. Well, Gordon Bethune is certainly a, a larger-than-life personality, and your book had lots of those personalities uh, in the 
in the drama of the book, um, who were the key players that really stood out for you, Peter, in the context of personalities that just drove the agenda and in some ways drove Boeing to where they they ended up? Yeah, I mean, one is, uh, you know, obviously the, the seminal one is, is Joe Sutter, who is the the father of the 747 and and he he's just greatest generation figure through and through and and he was completely dedicated to to product and um made several decisions i outlined in the book where he he stood up to the finance side uh there there's there's one meeting you know late in the 747's development when costs are rising and He's getting pressure to to drop engineers, and at this meeting, he stands up and says, "You know, well, you know, considering the work we have, I, I need a few thousand more." Um, and you know, he thought he was going to get fired, as, as he describes it. But he later heard that T. Wilson, who was um, on his way to being the CEO of Boeing at the time, you know, was impressed with him, and and that was the thing that at the time the leadership at Boeing was still focused on product, and and they considered themselves at heart a commercial aerospace company. I mean, there lots more, you know, more, more recently, I, I talked to Alan Mulally quite a bit at the time I was a beat reporter and got to understand his extreme dedication to product and his knowledge of the product and, and the, the way he would, in a smiling way, you know, make clear to people that, that he, he would tolerate no either either no surprises or or no no slacking that that he he demanded a lot from people but he he also would be uh understanding if if people came to him with with a problem his temper would flare if if people hid things from him and and you saw that at Ford later that that he had a meeting early in his tenure where when uh, managers at first were telling him only the good things and then when finally someone said, you know, I need some help here. He, he clapped his hands. So, and it, and it was that, that and, and as I chart in the book, um, that type of leadership left. Once Mullally was, was passed over a second time to be CEO, it, it was purely the, the, the Welch disciples who, who held the reins at, at Boeing. We'll have more of our discussion with Peter Robeson, the author of Flying Blind, in just a moment. But first, a reminder. Seabury Securities, a Seabury Capital Group company, is a specialty finance and investment banking firm boasting a 25-year track record of advising aviation clients around the world. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at SeaburySecurities.com. Peter, with Mark Forkner's recent acquittal, it appears that no one at Boeing is going to be charged with any criminal activity from these crashes. Do you agree with that? Well, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to pass judgment on um, the, the the jury's decision. I think I think they were asked to to make a they they were asked to to find fault with with one person that that uh, that something that was a, a collective and ultimately a management mistake. I, I you know I argue in the book that Forkner was a a fall guy that that he was blustering and and he 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 did not pay heed to uh, enough of the concerns you know brought to his attention about the level of training, but he was ultimately following the orders of management. I, I, I think one argument 
is that the criminal investigation got underway after the first crash when there had just been a single crash and the investigation was focused on did Boeing's representations to the FAA defraud the FAA? And I thought a more interesting question after the second crash was what were the representations that Boeing management made to the public, to their customers and and to their own employees? Because Dennis Mullenberg went on uh, Fox News after the after the first crash and claimed that MCAS, the, the system that uh, was blamed for the crash, it claimed that that was in the manual, which it was not. And and later, Richard Blumenthal, the Connecticut senator, said that was a lie. And if people had followed the thread of what Boeing managers knew and when they knew it and what, what briefings did Dennis Mullenberg get before he went on Fox News, what did he actually know about what was in the manual? You, you could have pursued a case of securities fraud, which would be similar to the, the Theranos um, case and Elizabeth Holmes. So, Peter, I'm going to ask this question. If you don't want to answer, we'll move on, okay? Okay. Based on your reporting and then the subsequent changes Boeing has put in place, do you feel like they've the management team there has learned from these mistakes and is it capable of making permanent change to the culture? That That's a really, I, you know, I, I guess I'm, I'll answer that question, but I don't know the answer any better than other people just because the the Boeing management, current management certainly talks a good game as if they have changed the culture. They, they do have a safety committee on the board. They know that they're under an extreme microscope for any further accidents that that, that 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 would be crippling to the company so that so they 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 certainly are trying to change but it's a question of whether a manager who is is raised in ultimately a cost-cutting bottom line directed culture um, can truly change the culture of the company um, you, you definitely heard uh, recently, uh, the FAA did a report showing that there is still undue pressure, that, that some engineers at Boeing still feel undue pressure. Definitely, the FAA feels empowered to make Boeing complete its submissions in a timely fashion. The question is, once the once the spotlight is finally off Boeing, if we can imagine that, has this new generation of engineers learned? I, you know, I talked to one engineer who um, had worked on the Triple Seven, which is considered sort of the Camelot era of, of Boeing when it was led by Mullally, and th- they convened a group of customers to to weigh in on the design decisions. And this guy, when 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 he read about the mistakes that had been made uh, after the second crash, his first thought was, "Oh, it's this it's this generation of engineers who've been." raised with the McDonnell Douglas shareholder value mentality, because w- one point that's been made is that at McDonnell Douglas, they, the engineers will, will progress through designated levels. And at McDonnell Douglas, after they reach the third level, they're promoted to a management role. At Boeing, engineers would always rise to be a level five engineer, and then they would go to management. And people at Boeing felt that the McDonnell Douglas engineers just didn't have the deep product knowledge. So once you've lost a generation of that, it becomes a question of whether you can truly get back 
the leadership you need? Do you have the talent you need? Boeing is bleeding talent to Amazon and Microsoft and Airbus has 60% of the market. So can Boeing and, and Boeing's got this huge debt. The aerospace in, industry is, it's this long-term industry and, and you can you can maintain this this number two spot for quite a while as McDonnell Douglas did, but, but the, ultimately the momentum just shifts and that same thing could happen to Boeing over time that, that in 10 or 20 years, it has a very small portion of the market and it's Airbus and some new competitor from another, you know, perhaps China. So that's my, (laughs) that's my answer. Peter, your book is fascinating for anyone who loves airlines, aerospace and such. But it's so much more than that. I would think anyone interested in business, organizations, people, motivations, things like that would also like reading your book. So what are the lessons do you think that can be learned from this story that apply to all businesses? Yeah, I mean, there are so many. I mean, one is um, the safety culture, especially at a company like Boeing, the the travel industry is, is all important. And when you drift in, in any way from the safety culture that will cost you. I, uh, you know, so many times in reporting this book, I, there were comments people made that just stuck with me. And, and one was talking to a person who'd been a, a safety pilot and was visiting a customer and was talking to this airline and, and the, the airline CEO came in and had these just detailed questions and knew everything about what had been going on. And, and the, the Boeing pilot I talked to, remembered coming away from that meeting with his manager and the manager said, wow, that was, that was really impressive. I, 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 he, re, he really knew a lot about what's going on. And, and the, the training pilot said, well, that's because they have a regular meeting. They have a safety meeting, you know, that's designated and, and they make that a point. They, 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 they drill that from the start into people. And it was just stunning to learn after the second crash that Boeing had no safety committee, of its uh, on its board and and one of the pieces of advice from a board member who was the former CEO of Medtronic was you know we could we could have a regular safety update that was something we did at Medtronic and at Boeing safety was a given and that is never an attitude you can have at a business like this and then of course the other lesson is is just to to not focus too much on one single constituency Boeing focused to its cost on investors at, at one point it was sending 80 percent of its free cash to investors in the form of buybacks and, and dividends and so that cost r d that costs your wages that that you you need to invest equally in communities workers customers not just investors the netflix documentary downfall covered similar ground to your book uh, with regard to boeing and these accidents uh, were you involved with that at all, Peter? And was the movie as good as the book? <laughs> no, I, I wasn't involved with it, but I, I watched it and I, I thought it was uh, I thought it was very good. I, um, I I know the reporters involved and Andy Pastor from the Wall Street Journal is 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 great. John Ostrower is is great, and I I think what it's telling you is that people who've covered the company for a long time are seeing the same things and. Hopefully, Boeing management is not only responding in a defensive manner and is taking that to heart. 
and is, is truly thinking hard about how to respect its its engineering workforce and, and their opinions about the product. Peter, this has been wonderful. As we wrap up here, would you share some of the most surprising things that you learned while writing this book? Yeah, I mean, I, I had talked about Alan Mulally um, earlier, and, and I had always wondered uh, why he was not chosen uh, to be the CEO of, of Boeing. And it's a really pivotal moment because engineers have, you know, just almost uniformly think highly of him and, and think that if, if he had run Boeing, that, that this terrible outcome may not have happened. But what, what I was told by my sources was that Boeing, uh, that, that the board preferred Jim McNerney, who was the other choice at, at the time, uh, because he's a Welch protege and is somebody who was considered a, a great get at the time that, that Boeing, two of its executives had left because of, uh, in, at, amid re- revelations of inappropriate relationships with subordinates. And so I was told that the board preferred McNerney because he, according, you know, quote, you know, there are some people who just look like a, uh, an NFL quarterback and, and he just looked like a CEO at the time. And then the other factor was that the uh, concern about Mullally's personal life had been brought to the board's attention and that came up as a risk factor. And as I was told, they, they just couldn't take the risk because they'd, they'd already had two CEOs leave because of uh, inappropriate personal relationships. So it's a it became a, a, a turning point for, for Boeing and a, a real tragedy in retrospect. I, as I was told, Mullally even recently was was willing to serve if he'd been asked. So that was surprising to me. The, the other surprising thing was that you have not heard publicly acceptance of, of, of blame that, that uh, in tortured language, uh, Boeing ag- agreed that uh, two of its employees made inaccurate representations to the FAA, but they haven't flat out said in, in public, we, it, it was our mistakes. We're, we're learning from this. And maybe, maybe you do need new leadership to, to say that because Dave Calhoun, the current CEO, had been on the board for, for so long. So th- those were a couple of surprising things. I, w- I would have thought that I would hear even privately m- more soul searching from people at Boeing. Well, Peter, you've been very generous with your time. You've been generous with your insight and knowledge. Your book is on our recommended reading list on our website. So for listeners who haven't read it, you should go out and get it and read it. It's a fascinating tale of a great company that uh, lost its way and hopefully is going to find its way back. But uh, thank you for joining us here on Airlines Confidential. Thanks so much for having me. Really enjoyed it. Thank you, Peter. And we'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. Promotional support for Airlines Confidential comes from thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation with vintage timetables, route maps, brochures, historic flights, terminals, airplane cabins, virtual tours of airline maintenance and training facilities, models, safety cards, and menus, plus special flights and events. Thearchive.net is now boarding. Thanks again to Peter Robeson for joining Airlines Confidential. What a fascinating discussion that was. Now it's time for listener questions. Remember, you can send us a question via email at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. 
Ben, Back to the Future, another point of view on the pilot shortage topic. It's from Pete in Tucson, Arizona. I'm an avid listener and love that you and your guests cover such a wide range of topics. I must point out an aspect of the pilot shortage discussion that hasn't been critically fleshed out. The proposed increase in retirement age for Part 121 pilots fails to acknowledge that the FAA medical standards don't adequately assess the inevitable decline in neurologic performance as we age. I'm a 69-year-old former airline and corporate pilot who decided to hang it up at 68. While my knowledge and experience contributed in many positive ways, I became aware that my sensory systems and quick reaction abilities started to decline a couple of years ago. For international flights, airlines must follow ICAO standards that require at least one pilot on the crew must be under 60. However, for U.S. domestic flights, both pilots may be over 60. This is a complex issue, to be sure, but I firmly believe aeromedical standards need to be expanded to include a neurosensory assessment, not later than age 60. Ben? You know, Chris, I think this is a terrific suggestion from Pete. As we all age, we know what happens and science knows what happens. Obviously, there are the Tom Brady's of the world who can keep themselves healthier for longer, but we can't change science in the way our brains change and our bodies change as we age. So any discussion around increasing the age of retirement for pilots I think Pete's suggestion makes perfect sense with the idea that from 60 years on, you know, we start doing some sort of neurosensory assessment. And so maybe some pilots, even if legally the age were changed to 67, for example, might not pass their medical after age 60 because of that and therefore not be able to fly that long. I think this is a very interesting And science-based kind of comment, really appreciate it, Pete. Appreciate that you made the personal decision to step back when you felt that you were more of a risk at that point. But I think your ideas are right on, and I would back the FAA doing something like this if and when they do consider expanding the retirement age at all. I agree, Ben. I did note that Senator Lindsey Graham did end up introducing the legislation that he said he was going to to raise the retirement age from 65 to 67. I don't think this is going to be solved via legislation. But um, Pete offers some very good insight, and he also underscores that this isn't going to be solved by just kind of one single solution, but a series of measures that involve all the parties sitting down and talking it through. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Chris, I think you should take this next one since we don't have the uh, the great lawyers from Sidley Austin on the call with us right now. <laughs> um, hi, Ben and Chris. I've always loved drones and finally got the opportunity to work in that industry. Do you have any advice for someone going into the world of regulatory affairs? Thanks. P.S. I love the interview with Sean Donahue. So, Adam, first, congratulations on the gig. Drones are really a complex issue. We've talked about them from time to time on the show. With regard to regulatory issues, you know, I think it's going to be a convergence of federal regulation through the FAA, but then a lot of local regulation in the context of noise, 
curfews, whatever else, and kind of land use, where drones can land. So there are a lot of good um, you know, newsletters and things to subscribe to, but I think it's it's incumbent upon you to really kind of get smart very quickly about where the touch points are and where the pressure points are for potential regulation, for potential safety issues, for potential neighborhood and local issues, and where those are going to pop up. Because this drones especially are not a one-size-fit-all kind of topic. And just reading a lot, subscribing to, there's lots of newsletters and free things you can be reading. Find people on LinkedIn who talk about drones a lot. Follow them, get engaged in some of those conversations. There's a lot of information out there that you don't have to invest in subscriptions of things for, but it is a complex layered issue that the the smarter you are and the better you understand the layers of complexity, the better you're going to be at your job. Good answer, Chris. I like your idea of reaching out through LinkedIn and watching, following things. Certainly talking maybe to some former FAA administrators, some people we've had on this show, for example, might also be helpful since they understand that world really well. And all of them I know are interested in drones too. The other thing I would add is, you know, lobbying and regulatory affairs are really an education process as well. And so how do you take complex issues and explain them to your neighbor or to your niece or nephew, or to somebody who doesn't understand this. I remember years ago going to meet with the Speaker of the House uh, in the state of Illinois about online travel, and he didn't have a computer, he didn't have a mobile phone, and we never could have a meaningful conversation because he had no idea what we were talking about. And you're going to encounter those folks as well. I mean, a lot of us don't fly drones. And so how do you explain the issues to people who aren't experts? That's that's going to be critical. Well, as we wrap up this week, I want to offer a shout out to FedEx and United Airlines for their work in getting baby formula supplies from Europe to the U.S. And if other airlines have donated cargo space, thanks to them as well. And I'm sorry, I don't recognize you here. How the wealthiest country in the world finds itself in situations like this is for another podcast to explore, but I appreciate the role of the airline industry to help solve it. Good shout out, Chris. My shout out this week goes to something you mentioned earlier in the show, which is the opening of the new Terminal C at LaGuardia. At least three politicians that I know of, former Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York, former President Donald Trump and current President Joe Biden have all referred to LaGuardia as a third world airport at some point. And this opening of Terminal C is a big deal for that airport. There's more that has to happen at that airport in Terminal D and more, but this is a great step. And for anyone who flies through LaGuardia, they can start being more and more proud of the New York airports. I agree with that. I haven't seen Terminal C, but certainly the new American Airlines terminal is beautiful and quite an improvement. Um, I just urge everyone to wear walking shoes. There's a long way to go, no matter where you're going at LaGuardia now, but it's certainly an improvement. It is a long walk wherever you're going. And if you're getting an Uber, the great thing is they've made it very convenient where they all come and your driver can tell you I'm in spot 38 or something, you know right where to go. On the other hand, it's a long way to that spot. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, thanks again to Peter Robinson for joining us. And thanks again for all of our listeners for joining us as well. Have a good week. Have a great week. And as a reminder, Peter Robeson's book, Flying Blind, is in the book section at airlinesconfidential.com. Check it out. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.